but still that that is there that, that males are farmers that grow food and women are the purchases of and so i was trying to see if we could change that dynamic in some way or, or look at why that dynamic was what it was g'day and welcome to episode 68 of the humans of agriculture podcast thanks for tuning in on your saturday morning and giving it a little listen Today's guest is continuing on our series with Entola Trading. If you haven't checked out all the awesome guests we've got, jump over to humansofagriculture.com and have a squiz and read the story of the other incredible people we've got. Before this episode today, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the lands on which I'm presenting on today and have for quite a few months now. Pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations people and the first communities from wherever it is that you're tuning into the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Today's guest, Randall Wilkship, grew up on the Lower Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. He now resides in Adelaide and is the Grower Relations Manager for the Southern Region for Grains Research and Development Corporation, the GRDC. Randall's been fairly forward in putting his hand up to help support the industry, to better share what happens inside the farm gate across the supply chain. Randall, welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Thank you for having me, Ollie. Mate, it's, um, I guess, yeah, we we're just chatting very quickly off air, but you're in Adelaide and and I guess at the moment um, your area for the GRDC is Tassie, Victoria and South Australia. So you've been a bit stuck in terms of actually getting out and, and seeing the growers. How have you been getting on at the moment with everything that's happening? Well, I will acknowledge at first that I am in South Australia and, and um, the state has done fairly well with uh, with numbers of COVID variants. So so we have been fairly fortunate being able to travel around a bit. Um, I have managed to get down to Tassie a couple of times to, to see uh, grain growers down there, but um, it has been challenging and um, certainly I, I do feel for the, the Victorians who are part of the southern region, um, part of GRDC's southern region, that we just haven't been able to get there. Plenty of Zoom meetings mostly. Yeah. And, and how do you think, I guess, from yeah, your point of view, that industry engagement, how are people adapting to the Zoom side of things? Are they craving for a bit of a few handshakes and seeing people face to face? Yeah, we just had a, had a um, National Grower Network meeting, which is, which is for uh, the GRDC grain growers in um, SA Vic and Tassie only last week, actually, at Glenelg. And we actually had about 25 South Australian farmers in the room and about 25 Vic and Pazzy growers online. And actually it went really well. It's amazing in, in the last three years just how well growers have adapted to using the technology. And um, um, oh, it was quite astounded. So, so just to have the interaction of 25 separate screens up on a big screen and then and then 20 people in in, in face to face, it, it went very well. I think I think that's definitely is what humans miss is is that personal interaction. So um, you can see when, when you go to events and people could shake your hand, they're always a bit nervous. Should we shake hands or should we? But most people just eventually, it's <laughs> a culture part of our history. They do shake your hand. So. It is. It's a, it's a bit of a conscious decision, isn't it? When you're walking up to someone, you're like, are they, are they yeah. going for the handshake or are we not? So Then, then there's the, the feeling of rejection when you've sort of offered and they and you have to be turned out. So. <laughs> well, they put the elbow out. Now, Randall, I'd, I'd love to, I guess, step back. And as part of the Antola series, we're meeting some awesome people who are having an impact 
I guess, in their community or um, more broadly across the industry and understanding a little bit more about their stories and I guess how they've got to where they are and, and they're having that impact, whether it's at just a local level or, or a national level. Um, you're a South Australian boy, grew up on, on the family farm in the Lower Air Peninsula. Was agriculture always on the cards for you or what, what were you thinking that you wanted to do as a kid? Uh, yeah, I, th- I guess it was. Um, I was fortunate. My, my father in particular was, was, it still is, very passionate about agriculture and particularly um, grain growing. So um, uh, I'm one of three boys and we're all involved in agriculture in, in some way, shape or form. My youngest brother still, still manages the, that property. Um, so it was. I, when, you, when you grow up in an industry like that, everyone around you is from agriculture, involved in agriculture in some ways, it, it becomes the, the obvious fit. But no, I do like it. I like growing plants, really. Was I want to wonder about that. So you, I, I guess naturally you think of the older brothers kind of getting the first choice of ending up on farm. Was it a very conscious decision that you and your other brother made, I guess, to open that uh, door for your younger brother? No, that, that never was never was really seen that way. Um, for us, like, I've, I've, I feel my parents were reasonably progressive in that way, that um, um, that really it was, the property is there for that, that person that wishes to be part of it. So so we didn't have that sort of history. I, I was aware from an early age that my father probably would have liked to have had a daughter because he would have been interested to see that transaction. So probably that was part of, of what, made me think about this originally okay interesting um and tell me the, the town of yolana in south australia whereabouts does it sit i guess yeah i've only i've got a big map of australia behind me so i can probably look for myself but can you can you describe for our listeners whereabouts it is yeah, and, so, and what the town's like so yolana itself is is uh, a locality more than a town these days um there's probably only about 15 odd people live in yolana but the, the nearest agricultural town is is cummins uh, comes to school and hospital and all that. And so this is an hour north of Port Lincoln, Port Lincoln being um, being the port right at the bottom of Air Peninsula. Um, certainly on my Nuffield report, we were asked time and time again, uh, where are we from? And my standard line was, I'm from South Australia, in the middle, at the bottom. So, <laughs> and yeah. that didn't matter where you were in Australia or overseas, people managed to people paint a bit of a picture. Roughly, yeah. When you're in America, you have to tell people you're from sort of like Texas, but it's coastal. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it was a fabulous place to, to grow up and be part of because on a peninsula, we had the coast um, 40 kilometres away in two directions. So, um, yeah, well. Got the wide ocean on one side and, and a Gulf sea on the other. So, yeah. And so was, was high school locally there in Cummins or did you guys get shipped off to, to Adelaide for boarding school? Uh, no, we, we primary school at, at Cummins and then we were fortunate to, um, to be in Adelaide for, for senior school. And, and was agriculture an option straight out of high school for you? Or I guess, yeah, what was the option? Yeah, that you looked I, at? I started at um, Adelaide University doing a, doing a bachelor of, bachelor of ag science and then um, was fortunate enough to, uh, end up on a scholarship sort of program um, at University of California, Davis. So I did the final year of my degree having a marvellous time in California um, and supposedly studying a bit of agriculture. It, 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 was, it was quite entertaining. And, was it? and Californian agriculture is, is just extraordinary because they've got 
tremendous soil, a lot of sunshine, and then all the irrigation water that they think they could find. Yeah, wow. What, um, how long were you over there for? Just a semester or for the whole, whole year? Uh, I, did a, I did basically 12 months. So their semester works roughly halfway through our calendar year. But So I started in January and finished in December. Did, you, did it ever cross your mind to maybe stay on in, in California and get into the ag scene over there? Uh, yeah, it was a bit more corporate than probably I'm aware of coming from a family farm. There was, there was a lot more of that structure. And I think after a year of being away, and, you know, I was only young at the time, um, you're probably keen to come home. Um, just feel like you've missed Australian all. accents and drink some bunny rum and eat some Tim Tams and all that good stuff. <laughs> was, was it ever on the cards going back down? I guess, yeah, you, you studied ag science, so agronomy kind of a, a natural calling um, was, yeah, the, the advocacy or I guess grower services space of interest or, or where, where did the career start to take you? Yeah, I, I, when I came home, I was offered the opportunity and I spent um, certainly uh, some seasons with, with um, a local agronomist uh, doing some work in a trainee sort of fashion. But um, at that point, uh, my I was just myself and my father and we had the opportunity to expand the business. So uh, a neighbouring property came up for lease and then a bit later one for purchase. So we, we grew the business and so I became part of that. Um, then my youngest brother came home and with the business just kept growing. Yeah, cool. That's, uh, that's awesome. I, I want to ask you, so I guess, yeah, as part of the Antola series, Alicia did pick up, I guess, your work as a Nuffield scholar, but I think that probably comes secondary to nearly the advocacy role and, and putting your hand up. Um, I guess, yeah, was there, was there a key moment that spurred you on that agriculture needed more of a voice coming from internally and, and outward facing? Yeah, I, I know the, um, the guys uh, from Bullabara farming uh, fairly well. And I was aware when social media kicked off um, how well uh, John and Robin were doing there um, in their in their Facebook and, and Twitter posts. And so I became a bit involved in that for a while with, with our family business um, because I sort of saw, saw how uh, consumers were starting to push back against the things that farmers had done uh, forever. And then, and then I was on a family holiday in Queensland and, and while up there I went and visited an old mate of mine who, who I was at um, university with and, um, it was just after, was it the 2012 when the live cattle trade was stopped? And I just remember we we just well, I just caught up with him for a beer in his backyard on a warm sunny afternoon, and he was just telling me about um, how that just overnight changes the shape of your business. That a federal government, who were were basically pushed by by Australian consumers to just stop this after some some horrific footage was shown on Four Corners. And it just it just astounded me how quickly things can change from what you're used to to and what you accept to how other people who may or may not understand your business can change. And it just sort of stuck in my head for quite a number of years about how can we in agriculture tell our story better? Because I think we're pretty crap at it, actually. Um, we... Uh, we, we often in agriculture, and especially sort of, you know, I can't certainly speak for everyone, but, but we often just, 
just assume people understand what we're doing. But actually, we're one of the most urbanised countries in the world. 80-something mm. percent of our population lives in Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne. And so there's a heck of a lot of the rest of Australia there. And, and the people who live in our cities don't understand. And, and we can blame them. We can blame the ABC Four Quarters programme for showing it. We can blame the, that federal government at the time. But really, I, I really took that it was... It's our fault because we haven't told our story well. And not, you should just listen to me because I'm a farmer, but actually telling it with enthusiasm and passion and explaining why it is we do what we do. Hi, I'm Pia, horticulture and sugar analyst at Rabobank, and I'm here to share our latest insights on Australia's vegetable market. Did you know in 2023, Australia produced over $5.8 billion worth of vegetables, though only 4.3% of this was exported. Like many other countries, the Australian vegetable industry relies mostly on its domestic market. In fact, only 7% of global vegetables produced are traded between countries. But we are starting to see that trend change. Global trade is growing at a faster rate than production, and countries with low cost production are seeing the highest growth rates. You can learn more about trends in the vegetable market on our latest Rabo Research Australia podcast, Mapping World Vegetable Trade or reach out to me via the Rabobank Australia social media channels to learn more. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And I, and I think the, the thing when it comes to showcasing like who you are, you, you can't fake passion. And I think nowadays it's so easy to see what's authentic and what's not. And it's, it's black and white in terms of it. But I, I did want to, yeah, I guess. So you'd mentioned that um, like farmers had operated as they had, as they had forever but there was i guess that perspective which the city or the metro people just didn't understand and, and their voice was actually fairly loud when it came to decision making so how important i guess do you think it is that the industry recognize that the world around us is moving and that the way things oh, have always have been yeah very much so well i mean you can see it a bit you can see it right now in our current society with with how much traction some of the anti-vaxxers are getting and you know, I've, I've just come from a science background. I just believe in science. And then, and then people, people with such contrary views based on YouTube videos and things they saw, it's, it's, it's astounding to me how, how far we've shifted from good science that's got us this far. Like, like we do have cheap food and great health due to good quality science. And yeah, I get a bit challenged by it sometimes. It's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because like, I guess we can sit back and take the naive standpoint of, oh, it's just like, you just shouldn't listen to them. But it, they get a lot of these people and I guess these minority groups, they get a lot of traction because... They get traction. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that live cattle trade stopping, um, that was the first to me of look how much traction people can get. They can, they can stop a stop a huge industry but it's worth so much to the country and and to individual individual farmers yeah and the flow-on effects like it's i was chatting with someone recently about it and i think like what you're saying around agriculture sharing our stories like it's what happens inside the farm gate it's only one part but then you look across the supply chain and i guess this is what we're trying to do with humans of agriculture is actually we'll look at where those passionate people are about their little touch points and who's having influence in the whole kind of ag supply chain um it it's it's such an interesting one because i think it nearly seems too simple that if we humanize it and take it back to that person who it's randall who's 
got a family who's part of his local community. And it's like, oh, well, Randall's a lot like Joe in Paddington who coaches the local footy team. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. Exactly. It's, a, it's also that, that often we try and view other people's perspective through our own lens. I mean, I mean you, you and I can pop down to Woolies or Coles or the local butcher and buy a heap of meat and bring it home and put it in our fridge. And so we, we think that, that people in Indonesia should be the same. But that live cattle thing, that, that was a lot around slaughtering animals in a, in a marketplace and, and how terrible that is. But, but actually, that's in a lot of cases because there wasn't refrigeration for these people. They, they had to have their meat up fresh so that it would be safe for them to eat when they get home. And we don't quite understand how different cultures uh, have to store food or manage food or, or how they like to eat things. We, we often view it from our very Western Australian culture. I'm not sure that's all, all that good either. No, I think, yeah, perspective, like you're saying, is, um, is one of those key things. So, so you started doing a bit of work with, with Bullaburra kind of post this. Was there, was there any, I guess, shining lights that came out of it where you thought, geez, we're getting some traction on this or people uh, are listening? I wasn't actually working with them. I was just very much admiring the work they were doing and, okay. and then started um, a bit of a, our own social media and, and had, a, had a couple of posts where um, I, I, was, I was the main uh, spray operator for our business at that point and um, certainly had taken, uh, took, a, took a number of photos because, you know, clearly I was working with all those toxic, nasty chemicals that I hear about all the time. And yet, and yet no farmer by choice wants to apply products just for the sheer love of it. They're doing it because they're applying herbicides or insecticides because it helps food be provided cheap to people that say so people can afford it. And, and I, I certainly had a, had a tweet there for a while that, um, that was a my sprayer and a lentil crop, and and with the with the wording that uh, the market the market doesn't like toxic chemicals, but I've got grubs in my lentils that are eating holes in, and the market certainly won't buy my lentils when they've got holes in them. So I don't by choice want to be putting out an insecticide, but in the end, if no one's going to buy my product if it's got holes in it, I don't really have an option anymore. So away we go, and we're you know we're applying these products to stop grubs eating them the same as you do in your home garden. And just because it's done with a bigger machine on a bigger acreage doesn't, doesn't change it. It just looks more frightening to some people, I think, because it's done at scale. And, but and we're we, food producers. Most people are thinking all the time, we are producing food here. Mm. Were, were you met with much negativity off the back of that? Because throwing your, your head up, I guess, and exposing yourself can be a fairly, I guess, risky move personally. Yeah, it does. You've certainly got a bit of feedback. There certainly is a little bit of feedback. Um, it might, overall, I would I would definitely say it, it was positive because because I I don't try and say you should believe this or you should. I'm just trying to tell the story and say this is what we're doing and this is the reason why. And you know, I'm prepared to eat all the food that is produced on our place and and prepared to feed it to my families. And and I'm not in any way, shape, or form anti-organic either. If that's the choices you make to eat that food, then then you understand how that food is produced and and good for you. So, yeah, no, I guess it's the, the fascinating thing about ag, isn't it? Um, there's just so many different different layers to to things, and and it's certainly not, um, yeah, black and white into good producers, bad producers. It's all about producing for a, 
a market and what people are looking for. And, and I guess that flows back inside the farm gate. Uh, sure, sure, yeah. So I guess uh, I was going to say contentious um, issues, but but I guess the the advocacy piece and yeah, talking about what happens inside um, the farm gate and around spraying and chemicals maybe isn't actually that contentious once you you understand it. But your your Nuffield scholarship. So I guess yeah, for, for our listeners, you able just to explain at a high level kind of what the Nuffield scholarship is and and maybe the process kind of behind it. Yeah, sure. So, so Nuffield originally started because there was a Lord Nuffield in in the UK who who actually made his money um, out of a number of things, including making Morris minor cars. So that the little minis you see around that was Lord Nuffield's business. In amongst, he supplied um, uh, other armaments and so on for the British um, in the Second World War. I believe I've got that correct. So anyway, he he developed a large amount of money and uh, provided a scholarship for um, up to, originally it was three Australians to travel back to their home country to learn how to farm. That was the original essence of, of the scholarship. And, it, and it's evolved into this uh, from there. They've now got a private sponsorship um, from various organisations. And every year they take about oh, roughly 20 odd um, Australian uh, growers. So they're from industries as diverse as fishing and horticulture and viticulture and, and I was uh, a grain growing representative for 2016, um, uh, sponsored by GRDC. But um, uh, so that that was an investment made in, in grain growing uh, for, to, for you to travel. And so we did uh, eight weeks overseas um, with other scholars from around the world. And then um, you're expected to say so that, that we did a travel. I did travel with uh, nine other people from, from um, Ireland and uh, the Netherlands, the UK and a number of Australians and a New Zealander. Uh, it sounded a bit like a joke um, when you're trying to tell everyone and introduce it. And then you're expected to go away for another eight weeks after that and study your own personal topic. Um, and, uh, and then you write a project on that. So in our, in our tour with the nine of us, we we did uh, we travelled. We were fortunate enough to travel through um, nine countries in uh, six weeks. So we started in Ireland, and then we were France, Belgium, the UK, uh, the US, Mexico, Brazil, New Zealand, and then we came home in eight weeks. Wow, it's a hell of a trip. It was a heck of a trip because we were in Ireland and it was about minus, I don't know what, but too much. And we ended up in Brazil and had half a day on the beach at Rio. So to try and pack all that into what was basically carry-on luggage um, was quite a thing. <laughs> couple and, of, and sort couple of, of jumpers and boardies. <laughs> exactly. But also also a suit because we had meetings with from government officials um, some days through to just standing in paddocks talking to farmers on other days. So um, it was a fantastic experience, I, I admit that, yeah. This podcast has been produced in collaboration with Antola Trading. Owned and designed in Outback Australia, Antola have always been known for making some of the best quality work shirts money can buy. But their latest collection is extra special. As you're probably well aware now, Antola's founder, Alicia McClymont, has chosen 23 men and women who she sees are doing incredible things across regional and rural Australia as the Antola ambassadors. And 
We're here to tell their story through the Humans of Agriculture podcast. Made from 100% cotton, the shirts are perfect for those long hours in the sun and a hard day's work. And what's more, with every purchase of their new season's kids' shirt, Entola will donate $2 to the Ronald McDonald House charity in Brisbane to help those families who have to travel far in order to help sick kids. You can find out more at www.entolatrading.com. Your topic was um, basically looking at how the grains industry could, or the role, yeah, attract more women into Australia's grain industry. Um, yeah. Tell me how yeah. that came about. Well, I think I originally started with the idea, with the idea of, um, of how can you improve the efficiency of self-propelled sprayers. Um, and anyway, I changed topic midway through because I decided it wasn't interesting enough and, and I got the answer. Um, and I got really interested in that advocacy role with respect to how the world was changing and how just uh, a lot of farmers were not really listening to how, how the population was starting, was to me starting to feel that that they there was a there was it's a bit of a disconnect and I suspect that that's because there's a lot of boring old white guys that look exactly like me saying I've just sprayed it it's safe you can eat it and there's a lot of consumers going all chemicals are toxic and we can't eat that and there was this real disconnect and so I just sort of had this feeling in in 2016 that women are better at communicating than boring white guys that look like me and I just I was sort of looking around and then when we were doing Nuffield and we were meeting with all these different properties from different parts of the world seeing all these um all these enthusiastic women in in other industries but just not as many in the grains business and I, I just was really interested to know if we could get more women in the grains industry could they communicate better about what we're doing and, and why we produce food in this way? And, and that we are caring for our land and our soils and we are caring for our crops. And, and can women do a better job of communicating that to consumers? That was sort of an interesting, interesting thing to me because in the end, in Australia, certainly most of the consumers or the purchasers of food are still women because mums buy food for families. Um, it's changing, yeah, more, more men are seen at supermarkets now, but, but still that, that is there, that, that males are farmers that grow food and women are the purchasers of it. And so I was trying to see if we could change that dynamic in some way or, or look at why that dynamic was what it was. And, and was it similar things you were seeing kind of around the world in terms of, I guess, other developed countries to start off with in terms of that, the role of women within the family farming business? Yeah, certainly. It's, it's, there's far more women in, in those parts of agriculture where there are animals involved, livestock involved. There are, there are I met with, I met um, and interviewed him on my private study, um, about 70 women um, across all different facets of agriculture. And certainly if you look at uh, the dairy industry, the, the numbers of males to females is, is far more even. Um, and so, I, so one of the things that I sort of came away from, and, and bearing in mind, I'm certainly no psychologist at all, but I suspect there's something about nurturing. That came up a number of times in the people that I spoke with and, 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 and interviewed, that 
that women like to care for for things in a way that that is that is quite different, and and that works with with um, with livestock that the women nurture them and care for them, and it's harder to have those same emotions for tractors and plants, which is the real difference between broad scale grain and and dairy or or beef cattle. So I'd love to know, I guess, yeah, what were what were some of the outcomes? What were the learnings? I guess as you as you're going through that program? Well, I like to blame men because um, because I'm one. And so it's... It, uh, so you're just pointing the finger at yourself, really, are you here? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so so um, some, of the, some of the things that, that I did sort of discover are, um, are bloody obvious, but we don't always think about it. But if, but if you're a, a male farmer and you've got a son and a daughter um, and... And you say to your daughters, "What are you? What are you going to do when you go to school?" Girls aren't farmers, or you never, never, they never see women as farmers. Then the, your girls won't become farmers. But if you say to your boys, "Oh, when you get older, you will be a farmer, and this will be your land," then they're more likely to. So, so just be aware of your language around how you talk to your children if you've got both male and female children. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a history, and and you've you've identified it earlier that that you know plenty of plenty of family farms. The eldest son gets the farm, and certainly I saw that in you know in Ireland or Switzerland that they've got hundreds and hundreds of years of the farm goes to the eldest son, whether whether they want to be a farmer or not. And certainly there were plenty of properties I saw where there was an absentee farmer because it's yours if you're the eldest son, and that's not even questioned in some ways. And if you've got no interest in being a farmer, and there could be a lot better people at being farmers, but there's this history thing, which it's just history for history's sake. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, no, it's an inheritance thing. I was going to, I just want to jump back because I guess right at the beginning, you're saying your dad was a fairly progressive fellow in, or, and well, sorry, both your parents were fairly progressive in their approach to it. And yeah, the farm is there. If someone wants to come back and join the business, well, come come back and, and prove your worst type thing. But how, how much of an influence was your dad on this topic of, yeah, looking at something very progressive about the role of women in the grains industry? I, it, was, it was a factor, but, it, but I would really say it was just an accumulation of a whole lot of ideas bouncing around in my head. And then, and then some of the people that I, that I traveled with and studied with, because, because we had people from, from beef cattle through to horticulture, through, through to um, people that, that will end up working in, in advocacy and government roles and just talking with them and, and thinking about things. It became, it just sort of built until I got to this topic. Yeah. And then I met with some really fantastic um, um, Australian women who, who got me started down it. Um, and that, that was, yeah, that was just a tremendous, yeah, just tremendous thing to, to have those discussions really. Yeah. And, and I think like, it, it's one of those things where it's not just going to be a like click, flick the switch and overnight things are going to change it, as you, to your point, it's generational and it's the language we use and the opportunities and how you give people because farming or even 10 years ago when I finished school, like GPS was still only really just mm. um, being picked up kind of broadly. Well, now if you see a, a farmer operating without GPS, you think, well, geez, that goes backwards. So, or girl. Um, well, that- Sorry, Sorry. Yeah, that that uh, 
that that's certainly part of it too. I mean, in my grandfather's generation, when it was um, bags of wheat that needed to be lifted, there was certainly a, a physical strength thing there that that clearly men in general are, are bigger and stronger, and so and, that, and society was different times. So that that was a that was a factor. You could see that, but nowadays, well. I once took a photo of my thumb when I'd cut it and um, and posted it on social media and said, I can hardly drive today because my auto steering gauge finger has put a Band-Aid on it, right? And, you know, 1,500 people liking the post and carrying on. It was quite funny, but I just did it as a funny thing. But, I mean, how hard is it to drive a tractor these days when you just need to press auto steering gauge? <laughs> it's, you don't need to be of any great physical size or strength to be able to, to, be able to drive a machine anymore. No, not at all. I, I want to continue because I, I had a bit of a look at at your study and, and one of the key points which you know, I think came out um, really clear was that, so in Australia, women produce 49% of the real farm income. And I'll just, I guess, put a disclaimer. This was as of your study in 2016. So things may have changed slightly, but um, you mentioned in your report that the view across many countries, including Australia, is that the most qualified person um is probably the person who's best suited to be in the managerial role of the farm. How was, I guess, that statement and yeah, welcomed uh, as part of your research? Well, I think it goes to like the the, the topic was in encouraging more women, but really, where are the women in the grains business? Well, actually, I identified quite quickly that that I, that so many women don't view themselves as farmers, and actually, I put that challenge back to them over and over again um, because because so many women I spoke to they said oh I'm not a farmer I'm a farmer's wife and and I was really challenged by that statement because because then I'd say so so what do you do and the women would say well I do the books for the business and I go to town and I pick up the parts when they're needed and I help out and I drive the smaller tractor maybe on the stone roller or the or the chase bin I say but are you a farmer no, 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 I'm not a farmer. Well, why not a farmer? Well, well, I don't drive the seeding rig and I don't drive the harvester. So is that how we define farmers in the grains businesses? Who drives the header? And it, and it was, like, to me, in every way, shape or form, they were farmers. They're an active part of that business, but not identifying primarily as a farmer, even, even identifying as a farmer's wife. And yet I never, I spoke to 70 people, so I said, I didn't meet anyone who said I'm a farmer's husband. Men don't identify like that, so it's a, it's a point of who do you identify as, and um, it, it is changing. Since since I started as a as a young fellow coming home, going to farmer meetings, and you just be aware that it was all blokes, blokes up the front talking, blokes in the room listening at farmer meetings, whether you have an agronomist or a scientist there or whoever. But you can see now, then then it started. You'd see a whole lot of young agronomists being female, and so it's coming, and now you'll see female farmers coming. So it's changing and, and for the positive, I think, definitely. Have you have you been sought out by people as, I guess, I don't want to say an icon, don't want to pump your tires up too much here, Randall, but no, in terms of, have you been sought out by young people where they're like, whether it's just to thank you, but I guess, yeah, to, to pick your brain a bit more around the topic of, of what you've done? And now I'm going with no. <laughs> um, I don't think sort out. I think I, I speak to uh, I speak to 
I do speak to people, even even on Monday, I was judging a science expedition um, and I'm just so enthused by by young girls coming through in, in science. It's it's really changing. So it's changing in science and the, the STEM subjects, then uh, it's got to be changing in agriculture as well. So it's, it's changing. I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. I'm slightly uncomfortable with those many of us standing up in front of a big audience to talk about it, but uh, I, like, I certainly have had private conversations. Well, we hope that... Um... This conversation gets a few more people. I guess, yeah, you've just mentioned around the science and technology side of things and, and agriculture. And we, I guess we're starting to see this intersection of some of the bigger challenges of climate change and food security and, and all these big issues that agriculture and food production sits um, pretty nicely in the middle of it all. What, what's, what's exciting you about the future of agriculture? Oh, from a grain growing point of view, it's it's how much production people are doing with so little rainfall. Um, because um, because given that I work across this region, I, I I'm fortunate to be able to see from the very low rainfall in the in the SA and Big Mallee where it, the rainfall is so low and people can grow grain. And the the models that that I just learned about when I was at uni are just thrown out the door now. People can produce food. Out of low rainfall, and then, and then, as I said, I work in Tassie, where it's high rainfall plus irrigation, and the production coming out of country is just incredible. And it's just the best of understanding soils, understanding science, plant growth cycles, and yeah, I just, I really like the diversity. It's, it's fantastic, and the, the passion of the people to do a good job. It, yeah, yeah. I've got um, two questions which are well. One question which I ask everyone who comes on the podcast and the second one being around the Antola um, shirts. So as an Antola shirt ambassador, which you've got on, which looks pretty good as well. <laughs> tell me, what's it, what was it like when Alicia reached out and, and asked you to be an ambassador for the shirt, but also, I guess, to share your story and what you've done in ag? Um, mildly intimidating because when I first got it, I thought, "Oh, this is this is nice. Someone's someone's given me a call and, and recognised that I I did a Nuffield scholarship on this report." And then I um, got through on the website and I saw the calibre of the people that um, have also spoken on this topic, and I, I was a little bit intimidated because there's some fantastic speakers um, who've also been part of this program. So, so. Um, yeah, and, and also it was a little bit daunting because I guess uh, the the project came out originally out of um, primarily livestock um, people, um, beef cattle producers, and I'm from the grains business, and it's always a friendly rivalry in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> so, um, so I was a bit honoured to be part of that. So, yeah, no, it's good because I think it goes back to your point earlier around advocacy. Um, it, it is so important that people in ag talk about what they do, and I, and I guess one of the parts which is somewhat uncomfortable or incredibly uncomfortable at the beginning is actually talking about, I guess, your journey and, and what you've done. But I think it's, it's what actually makes it relatable to someone else. And time and time again, you'll, there'll be someone who will listen and it wouldn't surprise me after this, there'll be someone who's come from the family farm and they're thinking, do I go back on farm or do I pursue? And then it's like, oh, well, Randall has done that. Or maybe I'll just go and yeah, either reach out to Randall or just from the podcast as, as simple as, talking about what you've done and I guess some of that decision-making it's well, there is value in exploring the curiosities of whatever topic it may be. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. Now the very last question, which is one I ask everyone. So you're, uh, you're about to 
go into the local high school and you're talking to year 10 students, um, you're, you're giving them a bit of life advice here and, and I guess um, letting them know, or, or yeah, I guess giving them a bit of an insight into why a career in agriculture could be something worth pursuing. What, what would be your messages to them? You, wow, yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, um, and you probably can nearly hear my eyes rolling as I'm trying to think my way through this one. Um, life advice for that. I, I think for me that in the end, um, why would you go into agriculture? It's because you're producing food and really like it is the most important job on the planet um, because, because you're responsible for, for keeping the human species going. Um, it's just a fantastic thing. So whether that's whether that's that you like milking cows or growing beef cattle or or apples and oranges or or broad scale grain, like you're producing food for humans, and it's just such a fantastic thing to be part of and to to use, you know, particularly in a country like Australia where a lot of it's a pretty challenging environment, is uh, is is to work with nature to do those things to grow the food is is just a fantastic thing to be part of and i i really like my job now because i get to see such diversity in the landscape of how many people are passionate about producing food for humans yeah no it's a it's a very special industry to be part of and i think it just i don't know if it's that um i'm young and i feel like there's just things everywhere but um there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm and as you're saying passion about it but i i just think it, like it just becoming more and more important um food production and everything stems off that yeah yeah whatever way shape or form that is from from just growing a few veggies in your back garden through to through to massive broad scale properties it's yeah it's a fantastic thing to do i like eating too <laughs> it's not bad either well randall thank you so much for coming on and sharing a bit of your story and journey with us on the humans of agriculture podcast well, thank you very much um ollie and and, and Tola for having me as part of this project well thanks for listening in i hope you enjoyed listening to randall's work on our website we'll also include a link to randall's nuffield scholarship which as he mentioned was and talked a little bit about was looking at how we get more women involved in the Australian grains industry. If you're enjoying these double episodes, we'd love to know your thoughts. Flick us a message on the socials, rate and review us on your favourite podcast app, or just get in touch with me directly, ollie at humansofagriculture.com. Look after yourselves, stay safe, stay sane, and I can't wait to see you all face-to-face sometime soon.